Welcome back, everyone. This is Ryan Selkis. You're listening to another episode of Masari's Unqualified Opinions, where each week I discuss key industry trends with crypto's top investors, builders, and thinkers. Just a reminder, Masari is much more than a podcast company. So if you're an industry professional or crypto investor, head over to masari.io and check out Masari Pro, our crypto toolkit that offers best-in-class research, advanced screening, and charting tools to keep you ahead of the investing curve, plus a new enterprise alerts tool. We're also hosting the industry's largest virtual event, the Mainnet, this June 1st through 3rd, with over 50 hours of programming, 100 confirmed speakers, and virtual networking that's so seamless, you'll feel like you're actually there. 50% of the profits are heading to COVID relief, so go reserve your spot today at mainnet.com. Dot events. That's masari.io for pro research and tools and mainnet.events for the best virtual event you'll attend this year. With that, strap in for another episode. Going to be a good one. This episode of the podcast brought to you by Luca. Save money this tax season with Luca Tax, the only time-tested crypto tax software. Luca has listened to your feedback and now lets you calculate capital gains and losses, seeing the results using three different accounting methods side-by-side, all for free. You only pay if you want to see their detailed tax reports and submit your forms using their software. Luca supports unlimited transaction downloads from all major exchanges and wallets and helps you optimize your tax reporting so you can max out this year's refunds or minimize how much you have to pay. Luca wants to help Masari's Unqualified Opinions listeners save even more this year. So use promo code MasariTax and you'll get a discount. Much more importantly, you'll do your taxes correctly and stay out of jail. Download LucaTax at Luca with two K's, tax.com, and save money this tax season. This episode is brought to you by Bitstamp, the original crypto exchange. 2011 is a long time. This is their third Bitcoin halving, and Bitstamp has been the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors all along the way. 4 million customers, including top financial institutions worldwide, use Bitstamp. Check them out because they've got some serious professional-grade trading technology, including a matching engine from NASDAQ, some of the best APIs in the industry, and TradeView, their advanced trading interface includes live charting and deep analytical tools that are available on web and mobile. Bitstamp also delivers unmatched customer service, no robots, real live people around the clock via phone, email, and social media if you have issues, but you won't. Join over 4 million traders, download the Bitstamp app from the App Store and Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to get started. That's bitstamp.net slash pro, and they're hooking you up with a discount for Masari Pro as well using promo code Bitstamp. This episode of the podcast brought to you by Crypto.com. We know times are tough. That's why Crypto.com is introducing three different measures to help its community with their new Crypto.com app and credit card. First, they're waiving the 3.5% credit card fee on all crypto purchases in the next three months. They're also offering 10% back when you use the MCO Visa card on food and grocery shopping. And as always, you can buy gift cards on the Crypto.com app for merchants like Whole Foods, Safeway, Burger King, and more with 20% back on food and additional 10% back on groceries. So download the Crypto.com app today. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, one of the top blockchain events and media production companies I've worked with for exclusive content and events that could help you with insight into the crypto and blockchain space. Check them out at blockworksgroup.io and you will not be disappointed. All right, everyone. Welcome back to Masari's Unqualified Opinions. I'm Ryan Selkis at 2BitIdiots. Some of you have seen me on the live stream, but for those that haven't, got a little bit of change up top going on. Same show though, same high quality guests, same good conversations. And today is no different. I'm excited to have a conversation with one of the hottest infrastructure companies in crypto um, and founder 
Michael Schall of, of Fireblocks, founder and CEO of Fireblocks. We're going to talk all about institutional grade infrastructure for conducting trading and greasing the wheels for institutional adoption of crypto. Um, Michael, hot off the press right before uh, we signed online here just this morning. Uh, today is April 30th. We're recording this is probably uh, getting uh, produced and, and published in, in early May. But um, it was announced that you've now facilitated $30 billion in digital asset transfers plus in, in Asian expansion. So obviously a, a ton going on in a short amount of time. Um, the company is fairly young, has an impressive group of, of backers and customers though. Uh, why don't we start by just giving people some context in terms of your background and, and, and history and, and how you ultimately got full-time uh, into the crypto market and, and you know, came to uh, build Fireblocks, which you know, we, we now know is, is powering um, a number of, of the top uh, trading desks and, and other uh, institutional buyers. Yeah, sounds good. So first of all, Ryan, thanks for having me on the show and uh, really appreciate it. Um, maybe I'll, so I'll give a bit about a background about myself. Um, I spent the last two decades in the cybersecurity space. Uh, back in the days, I actually started in the Israeli Cyber Command, as you can hear from my accent. I uh, was uh, basically serving over there for four years. And uh, around 2011, I started my previous startup, which was doing cybersecurity for smartphones for enterprise customers. So it was basically a solution to help um, cybersecurity organization in all the big banks, all the big technology companies to navigate uh, the adoption of uh, smartphones and to protect uh, the employees of those companies from uh, cyber attacks, like what happened to Jeff Bezos recently. I think like, you know, that was uh, all over the news. And uh, in 2015, we got acquired by Checkpoint, which is uh, the biggest cybersecurity vendor. They invented the firewall in the beginning of the 90s. And uh, I was running their mobile and cloud, sec mobile and cloud security business, so essentially the transformational uh, division. And in 2017, something quite interesting happened. Uh, well, I mean, it's unfortunate, but for me, this was sort of what brought me to crypto. Uh, there were four exchanges in South Korea that got hacked by uh, what later was discovered as uh, the North Korean uh, uh, a group of hackers that are back backed by the North Korean government. And they were able to steal $200 million worth of crypto uh, basically overnight from those four exchanges. And we found ourselves, because our, of our expertise in mobile investigation and stuff like that, we find ourselves part of the part of the investigation team that was looking into that hack. And that was actually the first time that uh, I got involved in, and understood that there is a fairly active uh, institutional market around crypto. So still while working at checkpoint i started to have those conversations with a lot of the big a lot of the exchanges and brokers and you know just in, uh, hedge funds and institutional uh, um asset managers uh, in the cryptocurrency space mm -hmm. uh, they were quite quite open with us explaining like how they operate what are the problems they have what are the deficiencies and what are the issues that they are facing and essentially on the back of it we were able to what we believe um, seems to be like, you know, everybody else has believed the same. We were able to find and build um, a very good solution to essentially serve uh, that tier of the market. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so talk a little bit about um, some of the, uh, the kind of incremental value add uh, that you're bringing to the table because the 
the institutional market in particular is is always at the bleeding edge. You need better, faster, cheaper, kind of every step along the way. And as there's been more liquidity, as there's been more, um, you know, global exchanges that have popped up as the uh, integrations that are required to actually move money um, efficiently across, you know, the globe uh, get, you know, more complex and are really ever changing. Um, there's, there's about a million different decisions that these uh, investors need to make uh, when it comes to, you know, understanding the regulatory compliance of, of who they're working with, understanding the security of the systems. Um, what, what components are you able to abstract away um, that have been most valuable and, 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 you know, reduce the pain points for these customers um, the most uh, versus what might have been traditionally uh, taken care of in-house by either a compliance team or, or an internal tech team? Yeah, so I think um, just in general, most of our customers, they either transition to us from uh, some kind of an internal build or internal type of system or uh, they were using like a third party service providers or custodians that uh, I guess like, you know, we're solving part of the problem, but, mm-hmm. and either like, yeah, they were not solving it like in a, in a way that uh, was good enough or, or they actually were not completing like the whole spectrum of things that need to be solved. Mm-hmm. Um, so probably like, you know, to, to actually give a better answer, maybe I'll, I'll give my personal view on the, where the market was when we started, where it is now and what are sort of like, you know, the missing pieces, right. For if you're, if you are an institution that, uh, whether you're an exchange or you're a hedge fund or you're a prop trading desk or payment provider, I think like, you know, eventually what you realize is that all those guys have a pretty common set of problems. And the first problem that you have is how do I basically store or customize the asset, right? And I think this is probably like, you know, the most discussed uh, topic <laughs> in the market, which is like mm-hmm. always when you go to people from traditional market, like custody is, not, is never an issue here. Custody is a major issue. And the storage of the private keys and the access to the private keys is something that is quite, uh, is actually like, you know, the break of make, right, for, for a lot of those firms. Um, traditionally, like, you know, we had cold storage. I think that, like, you know, cold storage becomes, like, you know, less and less relevant. Again, there are geographies like Japan and Korea that, you know, it's sort of a, a, regulatory, a, a regulatory necessity. But uh, in, in, in Europe and, and, and the United States, we see sort of, like, you know, the, the adoption of, like, you know, more secure solutions that provide you high SLA. And generally speaking, in order to create a very liquid market uh, and a very efficient market, you have to have, an online high SLA storage component that allows you all the the highest level of cybersecurity to to be resilient against cyber external cyber attack and internal cyber attacks, and also internal governance. So that's like component number one. Mm-hmm. Component number two, which is actually the piece that uh, we are solving and no one else is solving is actually how do you transfer your liquidity across the ecosystem, right? Because the market has transformed for basically like the VC type of hedge funds that were buying tokens or investing only long in Bitcoin to folks that are basically like, you know, coming from Goldman Sachs and like, you know, from Duke Sigma and opening their own hedge funds. And like, you know, even the retail guys are continuously trading and liquidity has liquidity has to move, right? Basically, the assets need to move from one venue to another venue to third wallet. And and we have a lot of blockchains. We have a lot of different protocols. We have a lot of different uh, liquidity venues out there in the market. 
And that creates a huge complexity for people to basically transfer the assets, right? So mm-hmm. uh, to do it securely, it's actually, you almost need like a PhD degree, right? In, in computer science, because you need to go, you need to copy paste the deposit address from your account on Coinbase. You need to understand it's actually your Bitcoin and not Bitcoin cash account. You need to basically pass it into your, uh, into your, uh, into your wallet. You need to understand that no one is man in the middle in you. You're not being spoofed. You didn't accidentally took uh, an address of one counterparty and send it uh, to the different com- counterparty because you looked at an Excel spreadsheet, and you know th- the space is just full of <laughs> you know of a lot of bad stories of uh, either disaster or near disaster stories of how things went really wrong there. And what we basically are able to solve is completely abstract that layer, make it as simple and resilient as basically doing a swift transfer. I mean, there is nothing that can go wrong. You will always, it will always arrive to the destination. You don't need to like do test transfers. You don't need to check with your counterparty, et cetera. And you know, that really is sort of, just like you know, to, to another sentence on this, uh, that really not only provided a, a much higher degree of security, what actually it does, it basically reduce the operational uh, cost to operate the business because you have you need to have like way less people and actually also increases the top the top line because now you can utilize either your capital much faster or you stack less on credit lines with your counterparties in terms of settlements and there are a lot of different benefits that actually our customers are reaping through this sort of chain of operations and liquidity mm-hmm. um, the uh, the the I think the Big innovation here is for OTC desks and, and, and lenders, it seems, uh, primarily today. Do you find yourselves in competition with like prime brokers um, that are facilitating best execution, uh, or, or is this more underpinning that could interface with uh, a you know, prime broker solution like Fidelity's offering or, um, or Tagomi or, or the others um, just as easily as, as your existing OTC base? Yeah, so, so, so it's actually um, the infrastructure basically allows you, if you are a hedge fund, um, the infrastructure allows you either to self-prime yourself or for prime brokers, basically it's an infrastructure for them to operate. So we don't deal with, we don't trade, we don't do best execution. That's not our uh, bread and butter, that's not our skill set. But mm-hmm. all the underlying infrastructure of, let's call it a post-trade settlement, or it's actually like, you know, trade settlement because with blockchain, you're actually able to get it to, not to post-trade, but actually to the trade itself. Uh, that's what we provide. And we have prime brokers, like for example, a, a, new, a newcomer to the, to the family or to the ecosystem is Kavaria, which is a prime broker based out of the UK and Switzerland that is using us as an infrastructure. Also, like, you know, all the names that you drop, like, you know, are in, in different phases of uh, uh, working with us. And, mm-hmm. uh, and it's really sort of an infrastructure that allows either prime brokers to operate very efficiently and securely uh, or... Um, if you don't want to use a prime broker because you're able to do everything yourself, you can actually take our infrastructure. We have all the big lending providers already on our platform. You can borrow from them, get leverage, deploy it on 20 exchanges, trade, rebalance, return the loan. Have you seen uh, some of your customers uh, keep less money 
on exchanges uh, after after using Fireblocks, or um, is this more about peace of mind as funds are flowing and making sure that uh, there are no man in the middle attacks or or um, botched handoffs between the different uh, components of, of the pipeline? Because it, it seems to me that um, with the the system that's been designed, one of the primary beneficiary, one of the primary benefits, and one of the primary um, value adds would just be uh, improving the ROI on, on your invested capital or, or, or reducing your working capital commitments to all these different venues. Um, is have, have you been able to kind of measure any material change before and after? Um, because I'm, I'm curious, you know, what the delta has been for, you know, teams that A, have done this internally or B, just used other tools that weren't as feature complete. Um, and, and, and obviously this is important as you think about the centralization risks that some of the major exchanges pose, um, not just for, for Bitcoin, but for other assets kind of further down the, the line. Yeah, so, so I think it's, it's hard for me to, to answer exactly that question in terms of is there a difference between how much they keep on exchanges right now compared to how much they kept before, right? Because we don't know how much they kept before. Uh, but uh, what we can say is definitely that customers that we worked with, they see around 30% improvement on, uh, on their capital uh, when they are working with, uh, with our system. Sort of like, you know, it's like a direct improvement, uh, almost like, you know, on their capital in terms of movement. It's all like, mm-hmm. it's all related to the fact that we, it, it all starts like, you know, with the security, right? So the fact that we solved and, and to be honest, like, you know, I've been in the cybersecurity space for about 20 years. It's actually, like, you know, the first time that I've seen such a direct correlation between security and ROI or security and money, right? But the fact that uh, uh, you're actually able to solve and abstract all the security protocols uh, to simplify them and to move it from an hour or 15 minutes to basically a second, right? Uh, that creates uh, a lot of efficiency around how liquidity is being transferred. So, and there are also, like, you know, some incremental improvements over there. So, for example, uh, we announced a month ago, uh, sorry, we announced a week ago our uh, new initiatives with Bitstamp that mm-hmm. basically because uh, of the specific mechanisms that we have around storage, which is related more to the multi-party computation, uh, they are now crediting our customers with one confirmation uh, after one confirmation, instead of like you know three confirmations, so basically it reduced their time to credit uh, from 45 minutes on Bitcoin to 15 minutes on Bitcoin, and uh, we are now actually going into initiative with multiple exchanges where it's actually going to be zero confirmation, right? So you can actually get like credit immediately, right, for uh, for the deployment. Now, I don't think, I mean, if I had to guess, I'm not sure that like you know people are keeping more assets off exchanges maybe like you know they keep assets uh, off exchanges uh, during the times that they don't trade for example like you know overnight or something like that but what it does allow them is to sort of seize opportunities much faster when they see arbitrage opportunities uh, or when they basically need to execute trades from a customer to an exchange with our technology mm-hmm. um and on the, you know, I, I think that's uh, part of a larger trend with flash loans and uh, and lending in general, with with basically being able to allow for um, credits even before they've been confirmed, depending on the credit worthiness. So, so this is kind of in part a, a security 
um, notch in your belts and, you know, kind of indication from some of the leading exchanges um, that, yes, the pipes work and it's it's secure transfer and it's reliable and they know that there's, you know, very little risk of, of allowing zero confirmation um, transactions with uh, Fireblocks customers. But, um, you know, at, at, at the same time, I think uh, it's part of a larger trend in the, the lending ecosystem to um, extend credit and and not just in terms of interest rates, but in terms of um, features like faster access to liquidity or, or um, things that you'd expect in, in a legacy financial system, but that technically have been challenging to do historically with, within crypto. Um, how, have have you extended some of those discussions um, to the exchanges themselves? Because, you know, we just saw a high profile outage yesterday at Coinbase. I know it's not exactly the same, um, but every couple of months, you know, one of the major exchanges has some type of issue. Um, yeah. Rarely it's a theft or a hack. Um, not too rarely. Uh, obviously, it's it's been, you know, a, a, a per- persistent issue long term for, for crypto. But um, there's regular performance issues um, that almost always stem from from how the money gets moved around, and uh, it, it it seems like at the on the one hand this is proprietary technology that really should be built in house at the exchange level, but there are a number that might benefit from it when they're thinking about connecting their own internal architecture to external flows. Um, I'm not sure if that's a target for you at all. Um, it is. Or, 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 it is. or if that's just a, a, a much longer cycle, um, given the amount of money that they're, they're actually you know, facilitating. So, so the reality is that like we, we actually have a good penetration into the exchange space. We have a couple of exchanges that are actually using us as their infrastructure. And, we having like, and I think there are basically like, you know, three or four now that are going to onboard with us in the next 60 days or mm-hmm. so. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, we, we are, uh, we are saying, um, I think like, you know, what we are saying is, is two things, right? Like how, clearly like, you know, the big exchanges as mentioned, like Coinbase and Binance and some of those, um, they have huge, I mean, they're technology companies, right? More than anything else. Uh, and they have their own uh, custody solutions. They have their own uh, appetite in terms of how they want security to be done. And it's really sort of like, you know, a question for us, like, or basically, like, you know, we actually put like fairly interesting models in place in terms of how we can work with them. But in the end of the day, they do view that they need to be in a, in a certain possession of the asset uh, when they extending credit to you. And it's true that like, you know, as you mentioned about Coinbase and I think like, you know, the worst that we've seen uh, was on March 12 and 13, right? When basically during those, that 48 hour period, almost all the major ex- exchanges experienced some kind of uh, downtime, right? Like, you know, the most famous was basically like, you know, BitMEX, right? But like, We've seen Hobby, Coinbase, uh, all those guys were down, and clearly it, it affects uh, it affects us. It affects like you know our customers. Uh, it can affect them like you know on the movement of the money. It can affect them on the trading because usually, for example, Bitmax they were completely DDoSed in terms of uh, their functionality, so you 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 couldn't almost like you know trade there. Um, mm-hmm. But the reality is that, like, you know, those guys need to, I mean, I think those guys are doing a good job and, like, you know, they're investing in sort of maturing their tech stack. Um, at the end of the day, I think at some point the regulators will, will basically force them to 
be up to the standard of NASDAQ or you know something which is like really institutional grade that can uh, withstand the load that happens during those days. Mm -hmm. are, are there are there exchanges you won't work with because of compatibility issues um, or, or other partners or, or are all of these solvable problems from your perspective? So we currently integrated with almost 30 exchanges. Right? Mm -hmm. we, we have all the top tier and, the, and the, we have all the top tier exchanges, all the mid exchanges and some of the small exchanges. Uh, 30 is already like a very vast list. Uh, generally speaking for our basic integration, we, we have two modes. Uh, either we integrate with their APIs that they have for, for treasury management, if they have mm -hmm. those APIs. Or if they don't have APIs, we have another mode in which we basically extend our wallet uh, wallet uh, technology to them, and then they can essentially standardize on our wallet. And a lot of them actually decide to basically move their infrastructure to our uh, to our wallet. So um, all the problems, whatever they are, they are, are either fully solvable on our end, or if needed, like you know, we can solve it in some form of partnership. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Luca. Save money this tax season with Luca Tax, the only time-tested crypto tax software. Luca has listened to your feedback and now lets you calculate capital gains and losses, seeing the results using three different accounting methods side-by-side, -side, all for free. You only pay if you want to see their detailed tax reports and submit your forms using their software. Luca supports unlimited transaction downloads from all major exchanges and wallets and helps you optimize your tax reporting so you can max out this year's refunds or minimize how much you have to pay. Luca wants to help Masari's unqualified opinions listeners save even more this year. So use promo code MasariTax and you'll get a discount. Much more importantly, you'll do your taxes correctly and stay out of jail. Download LucaTax at Luca with two Ks, tax.com and save money this tax season. Thanks to our sponsor, Bitstamp, for making this special halving series possible. Bitstamp's the original global crypto exchange. We're proud to be celebrating their third Bitcoin halving. Doesn't get much more OG than that. Since 2011, Bitstamp's been the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors worldwide with over 4 million customers, including top financial institutions. They've got some serious trading tech, matching engine from NASDAQ, the best APIs in the industry, and TradeView, their advanced trading interface with live charting and deep analytical tools that are available on web and mobile. So you can join the 4 million traders on Bitstamp by downloading their app, the App Store or Google Play, or go to bitstamp.net slash pro to get started. And a reminder for Bitstamp users, Masari is now offering 25% off of Masari Pro, our professional analytics toolkit with best-in-class research and advanced tools to help identify your next investments using promo code BITSTAMP. That's masari.io, offer code BITSTAMP to get ahead of the crypto curve. This episode of the podcast brought to you by Crypto.com. We know times are tough. That's why Crypto.com is introducing three different measures to help its community with their new Crypto.com app and credit card. First, they're waiving the 3.5% credit card fee on all crypto purchases in the next three months. They're also offering 10% back when you use the MCO Visa card on food and grocery shopping. And as always, you can buy gift cards on the Crypto.com app for merchants like Whole Foods, Safeway, Burger King, and more with 20% back on food and an additional 10% back on groceries. So download the Crypto.com app today. Um, and in terms of asset coverage, most institutional interest, most, most liquidity is in Bitcoin and then Ether, and then it falls off pretty dramatically. Um, how do you uh, support new assets, new kind of underlying blockchains, and, and, and how many assets do you currently support or are thinking about uh, adding support for 
this year? Yes. So, so we support the top 10 assets, like in a top 10 blockchains. So Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Litecoin, Ripple. Uh, we just announced like support for, uh, for Stellar. Um, uh, we, we support Ethereum. We support all the ERC-20s uh, or uh, ERC-1400 you know, as well. As long as uh, they're, they're standard, then usually it takes us... Uh, 24 hours or so to to onboard a new ERC20 just because we are basic we are we're essentially doing the 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 validation that it's a valid mm-hmm. contract mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in terms of like you know ongoing asset uh, or new block or new blockchain onboarding we usually onboard a blockchain once a month we're currently looking on the model of basically working with new blo- blockchain uh, protocols in a way that they can essentially uh, subsidize the the integration and uh, and the sort of um, create basically extend the teams that we have in place to support uh, multiple blockchain developments uh, in a in a given period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think uh, common sense typically prevails when it comes to support because some things that that creep into the top twenty end up falling out of the top 100 rather quickly because there is this chasm that has to be, you know, crossed before any, you know, deep-pocketed investors actually take some of these projects seriously. Yeah. So to be quite transparent, what we were doing to date is that we were actually running surveys with our customers. Every quarter we will run a survey and we'll ask them to rate the next three protocols that we need to, to support. Uh, and the last, the last survey that we ran uh, this quarter Again, it has to do with the fact that we already have sort of like, you know, over almost close to 50 customers, but also because we already like, you know, completed the top 10, the, mm-hmm. the survey was very, very, very fragmented. So you already see that after the top 10, sort of like, you know, the interest in new protocols is very pocketed, right? It's very fragmented between regions, type of type, different types of business and so on. So we, we are now basically sort of changing our strategy a little bit uh, in terms of making sure that we are, our, our development and our efforts are best aligned with um, how we can serve our customers. Um, and, and part of that, I have to imagine, is how do you prepare for new blockchain launches, basically being ready right out of the gates? And we've got some high-profile ones coming out uh, soon. We've got, uh, you know, Filecoin um, and uh, Libra and Polkadot, uh, you know, being the, the big three, I think that are, are trying to get out the gates this year, maybe Libra takes a little bit longer. Um, it's also a permission system. So maybe you're thinking about it a little bit differently. Um, but w- w- what is your kind of roadmap to supporting new blockchains that might come out right out of the gates in the top 10, top 20 uh, in terms of interest and, you know, have significant liquidity from day one because people are looking to make kind of the initial markets. Yeah. So, so we, so as you said, we act because of our dominant position specifically in the market making and OTC category, uh, we became a fairly important infrastructure for those blockchains when they come to the market. So specifically, like, you know, with the names that you've mentioned, we are currently in, um, um, a very close conversations in terms of making sure how we'll be able to support them. I don't know if like, you know, straight off the gate, but like, you know, almost immediately as they as they launch and uh, there is uh, again libra libra is a bit you know down the road i think uh, in terms of uh, 
when they're going to be launched, but I think it's, I mean, I'm long, <laughs> like, you know, on, uh, we're still like, you know, very long on that project. And I think that uh, when it will come out, it will have a long and lasting uh, impact uh, on the space. Uh, you know, clearly like fo folks like Polkadot, they're really looking into how we can build a model that uh, we will be able to support them uh, as they're coming out. There is a really strong interest to, to work with them from our community. Um, I, I think uh, most people are cautiously optimistic uh, about Libra, at least on the kind of financial side. And, and, and obviously, they, they just have a, a, a wealth of developers and top talent that's been working on this. Um, maybe even you know, more technical talent than are working on most other protocols combined, uh, which is it's just mind-blowing uh, to think about just given Facebook size and, and the fact that Facebook as a company has multiples of the size of the entire you know, crypto market cap, right? Um, and, and people, you know, people often lose sight of that. Um, but I want to talk about stable coins, um, more generally and, um, and what you're seeing in turn, or, or if there are any unique requirements around stable coin support, given that, um, you, most exchange listed stable coins now are pegged to dollars. Um, and, and yet they're trading across five or six different major assets, being Tether, USDC, Paxos is kind of the primaries, but then, you know, some other up-and-coming synthetic U.S. dollars like Binance USD and, and, and other exchange-listed coins um, are in the same vein. And then they also trade on different blockchains, right? So, so a lot of the liquidity right now is on Ethereum. Um, that could just as easily, uh, in theory, be ported over to, to you know, Bitcoin uh, via Liquid or um, other new up-and-coming uh, layer one chains. Um, what complexities uh, does that bring in terms of asset transfer when you don't necessarily have the same, you know, tax implications? You don't you don't have the same volatility concerns, but um, it is the plumbing of the entire system, and you need to be methodical about, uh, you know, how how the cash treasury is managed, uh, whether you're at the exchange or or, or at your, um, uh, you know, investor customer base. Um, uh, is it just any other asset or, or what have you seen on the stablecoin side of things, uh, given the explosion in the last few months, especially up to you know, yeah. 9 billion now? Yeah. So just to give you some numbers, out of the $7 billion that we're doing, like, like in the last 30 days, we've done like, you know, $7 billion in asset transfer. Uh, out mm -hmm. of that, 1.8 was stablecoins. Okay. So like okay. about, about like almost 30% was stable coins. USDT is still the king. So at least like in our platform, right? So I don't know, like, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, clearly there is some potential bias into, into our uh, set of uh, users, but USDT is still like 70% of the volume. And mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, Tether. And, uh, and USDC, if I'm not mistaken, is the second one with 10, 20%. And then, you know, the, the others basically, all, all those other coins, they represent basically 10% of our flow. Again, might be like, you know, different across uh, geographies, but that's what we're seeing at least. Uh, Cyber calls are extremely important for us because this is uh, where we see the plumbing and the ecosystem really matures. So it, we talked a bit about, about Libra, but clearly like, you know, this is the intersection where it's going to actually disrupt uh, 
uh, disrupt uh, uh, commerce, right? E-commerce and merchant services. Uh, and we do know that uh, credit card providers are actively involved in looking into this space. And basically, because once Libra or any one of those stable coins uh, uh, picks up, right? Then it essentially like, you know, takes, I mean, again, it's, it's, it's a bombastic uh, statement, but in the long run, it basically takes out all the business model of the credit card providers and the payment providers, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Just to give an example, um, our smaller customers, they can pay us with credit card and uh, we use Stripe for that. And Stripe takes 3% on the, on, uh, on the transaction. But we do incentivize most of our customers to actually pay in uh, in used in uh, in stable coins, uh, so USDC or PAX. And at some point, uh, at some point, uh, we had a customer that want I don't know why, but they wanted to pay us in the credit card uh, thirty thousand dollars. And I don't know, we're well, not going to pay one thousand dollars to Stripe and Visa to process a payment. Pay us in in uh, in used in PAX, so they pay us in PAX. So instead of like, you know, paying $1,000 and waiting 72 hours for that to arrive in our bank account, we basically, we have basically our own workspace, which is basically our own instance of Fireblocks. We just connected mm -hmm. to them over the Fireblocks uh, network. Um, they send us the, they send us the, the $30,000. Immediately we have a connection to, to Paxos, move it to Paxos, liquidate it back into our signature account. All that process took us I want to say 30 seconds, something like that, right? Basically, like, you know, two Ethereum transactions and then like, you know, in Paxos, you basically like click a button and it goes to your bank account and it, co it, it costs us seven cents, right? So like, it's, it's like unbelievable reduction, right? Like, you know, it, when people think about, when people say that something is going, like a technology is going to disrupt a different technology, they say, oh, so like if it's disrupting, like, you know, by 10% or sorry, by like 50%, it's not a disruption. This is like, you know, a 1,000% or like, you know, 10,000% disruption in terms of mm -hmm. how uh, payments are working today. So I, I think that like, you know, stable coins is uh, going to be in the next couple of years, probably like, you know, one of the biggest innovations uh, out there. Uh, we are actively involved in that space. We actually have, I didn't touch on it, but we also have an offering uh, which we call which we, we call it uh, uh, tokenization uh, the tokenization platform, which allows uh, stablecoin issuers to mint and burn tokens. It's actually tightly you can there is API you integrate it into a bank. So when the dollars arrive, it automatically mints. It has uh, controls to basically break the circuit if there is something which is like so, some kind of an overflow. So essentially, if for whatever reason, the system thinks that you need to mint a billion dollars worth of stable coins, right? Like what happened to USDT uh, a couple, I don't know, a year ago or something like that. There's sort of like an automated circuit break that basically moves it to a manual approval. So it's really like, uh, we, we actually, I cannot like disclose names, but uh, we are the technology behind one of the providers that are uh, some of the more interesting providers in one of the FX uh, stable coins. Very, very cool. Yeah, people, uh, I don't think, realize that there, there is no reason for businesses with cash on the balance sheet to have credit cards uh, in, in many cases, right? Especially tech and, and, and financial companies. Um, 
obviously there are benefits to having lines of credit open and and you're talking about like working capital uh management and and you know particularly from for um you know goods manufacturers or or you know companies that that deal in supply chain and, and kind of the physical realm but in the digital realm there's basically no reason to have a credit card right first of all if you're if you're losing money and you're not backed by venture capital it's probably dangerous to extend credit to you anyway so you're talking about a, a future where the credit card companies um, seem as if they will probably diverge between the core consumer business and then the corporate business, which I agree, you know, could be mostly disrupted, um, uh, if not fully disrupted, at least on the, on the initial payment side by stable coins. Uh, and obviously that's, that's the big long game that I think many, many in the space are, are playing right now. Um, but you talk about yeah, the, I, I, the thousand, the thousand dollars that, that you saved on that transaction it's not just that you can you can save a thousand dollars, but if someone's giving you a hard time, you can s- split it with them, right? You can say, "Hey, we're going to give you five hundred dollars as a rebate," yeah. um, right? And and you're still going to come out way ahead, right? Yeah, uh, I mean, look, this is the reason why, first and foremost, right, Visa bought Plaid, right? That's mm-hmm. because, I mean, again, different type of technology, but they were significantly making it cheaper to to do those. Um, reasonably expensive transactions. So I guess the retail is unaware. Most, most retail, most retail users are unaware of like, you know, the sort of this spread that is being taken on their behalf when they're paying with credit cards. But uh, for the merchants, it's clearly like, you know, will allow uh, a much more efficient and much cheaper uh, um, payment method. And so, you know, we are really excited about it. It also has, you know, more advantages. So for example, we, um, we in, we've recently integrated with Compound, Compound Finance, which is a, a decentralized lending and borrowing protocol that uh, we are extremely excited about. So in Compound, you you can essentially, with our platform, you can basically deposit into Compound and then you start earning yield on, on whatever you deposited. And you're earning yield in like, you know, in ticks of 15 seconds, right? So every block, every, every, every Ethereum block, you're basically earning some yield. Uh, so you essentially have like you know this ultra dynamic saving account that not necessarily you now to go and lock your funds for like a month or a year with the bank and if you want to break that uh, if you want to break that deposit uh, they take all your they take your all your your, your yield uh, <laughs> that you earned by that time I, I I think that like you know all those elements and all those pieces of the ecosystem once they stitch together in a way that is seamless for the user, in a way that it's secure for the user, it's sort of mind-blowing what kind of efficiency and what kind of transparency and what kind of reduction even of counterparty risk you can achieve by by just utilizing it. Completely agree. Um, so what are, uh, what are some of the big things on the horizon um, for Fireblocks the rest of the year? Uh, there, there's a ton of macro tailwinds. Uh, sounds like there's a ton of customer progress. Are there new features or, or new end markets that you're, you're going to be doubling down on? Yeah, so as you know, we just announced this morning, we've expanded already, it was like a, already, uh, a month and a half ago, we deployed uh, uh, two teams in, uh, in Asia. So we are expanding our... Uh, our presence in uh, in Asia, and you know, with the COVID nineteen, probably like you know, not uh, in general, like you know, not the best timing. But uh, we do we do see 
just because it's hard to travel over there. But just in, in general, we, we see a lot of traction for what we're doing in Asia. I think Asia is particularly a very interesting market because the use cases over there are many cases more advanced. Uh, they are much more, uh, I, I mean, again, I, from what I'm hearing from people, mainly because of the, the, the traditional ecosystem, the traditional financial system is sometimes not as good as in the US or in the Western economies. People sort of like, you know, leapfrog into crypto and actually like, you know, more willing to go and do things with crypto. A bit like, you know, uh, there is this always famous uh, analogy to, to Africa where in Africa, people never had like, you know, landline phones, right? They just like, you know, went from zero to to mobile phones and smartphones, right? Like the landline never happened over there. So mm-hmm. it, it almost feels like, like, you know, that something similar is happening in uh, in Asia. Uh, a lot of like, you know, interesting use cases, again, around payments. There are like a lot of the big exchanges that are over there, a lot of uh, trading firms. So we really sort of like, you know, doubling down in that, uh, on, on that region. Um, you know, in terms of like, you know, functionality, clearly, um, you know, we have a lot of the lending guys on our platform. Uh, we continue to push uh, on more advanced and uh, streamlined integrations with exchanges, uh, which uh, increase like the capital efficiency of our customers and also their security. So we have a lot of things uh, going on in that direction. Um, we also pushed on uh, the innovation around storage. So it's this announcement is not um, uh, public yet, but I guess like you know by the time that uh, this uh, this podcast will be published, it will be out. Uh, and anyway, the academic paper was actually published earlier this week. Uh, we had a, we made an extremely significant breakthrough in MPC technology, in multi-party computation technology that powers our wallets. So we just released a paper, an academic paper earlier th- this week, which essentially increases the speed and the performance of MPC by 800% which is huge compared to like, you know, the current uh, period. Um, so that is itself. And also it allows you to basically do offline signing with MPC. The security, uh, the security um, proofs over there are more advanced than in any other MPC, open MPC protocol. And the nice thing, the, probably like, you know, the most interesting thing about all that uh, compared to potentially like, you know, other people that they have, uh, related things that are proprietary, we're actually releasing it to the community. So everybody, all the different providers that are uh, working with MPC or looking to build something by themselves with multi-party computation, they can basically consume this protocol. We're not going to patent it. Um, so, you know, belongs to just in generally speaking, like, you know, we hope that it will improve the security in the ecosystem. Can, can you do a quick uh, explain like on five on multi-party computation and, and, and in particular how that bakes into the product? I know it's probably easier to do on a whiteboard. You have a, you have a white yeah. wall back there, but not a whiteboard. Um, yeah, maybe, think... maybe your kids draw on it. But, yeah. <laughs> um, but if, if, you could, if you could just work through that and, and kind of the history of, of, of MPC, because there are a few other protocols that have been working on this as well. Um, and I have a feeling you know, many more people are going to be hearing about this. Um, at least uh, when they're thinking about, you know, security and secure data transfer. Yeah. So MPC in general, it's uh, a theorem that uh, was in cryptography that exists in, since the 90s, which basically um, is quite interesting, sort of a black magic theorem, which basically means that like any 
calculation that can be done in a centralized location can also be done in a completely distributed way in a way that, mm -hmm. for example, and uh, I think about number and now we need to essentially multiply those two numbers together and get a, a result. Uh, so we don't need to disclose each other like, you know, what's the number that we, we thought about. There, there can be a protocol between us that somehow without actually knowing each other's secret, we can actually come to the right result, right? And also guarantee that none, none of us is actually tricking the other into basically disclosing his secret. So that's sort of like, you know, the, the general theorem, probably like, you know, the most famous uh, thing over there is what, what it's called the, the millionaire's problem where you have like five millionaires, they want to calculate their total net worth. None of them want to tell the other guys how much money he exactly have. And still there is sort of a protocol which allows them to calculate what's their total net worth, right? So that's sort of like, you know, the history of MPC. Um, there are like a lot of different uh, applications for it, but uh, generally speaking, like, you know, for many years, it was very computationally intensive. It was, uh, the theory exists, the math exists, but to actually compute it was, uh, was quite uh, complicated and, and uh, not really practical in, in terms of like, you know, the time frames that we're looking at. Now, in the last, uh, let's say like, you know, three, four years, there were like a series of breakthroughs that uh, in the academic research that essentially took that uh, capability and applied it specifically for signatures around ECD and ECDSA and ADDSA, which are the signatures that are most prevalent in all the blockchain protocols. And essentially what they allow to do is something that we call threshold. Threshold is essentially, in a broad sense, it's very similar to multisig. Okay, multisig is also a form of threshold. Basically, we need N party, we have N parties with secrets and M out of them, let's say like, you know, we have six people that they have like a cryptographic secret. Each of those cryptographic secrets are different. And in order to sign a transaction, we need four out of those six to, to basically do some kind of protocol between them. And then eventually they can sign a transaction on a public address. They can sign a transaction on a wallet address. And that transaction is basically valid for the blockchain. Okay, that's sort of like uh, threshold signatures. And basically MPC is, um, is solving this problem of how do you create a more advanced, a more robust, cheaper uh, multisig. Um, there are, so without like, you know, getting into the mathematical uh, details over there, because for that, yeah, you really need a, a whiteboard and probably like, you know, my cryptography team is, why, is way better than me to do this uh, kind of presentation. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, in reality, just from a practical standpoint, it really has a significant advantages uh, on top of, on the traditional multisig that you see in Bitcoin. Um, and I will just name a few. So one is that it is um, actually like you know one implementation that works across all the blockchain because it's it's not work, it's not a specific implementation for Bitcoin and then Ethereum they actually don't have multisig so you need to use smart contracts and Ripple they have like a different way that they basically created their 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 multisig. You basically create this kind of protocol. It works on the encryption algorithm, and then you're scaling it across all the blockchains. That's why vendors that they utilize uh, MPC can actually support more blockchains in a much faster rate. They just need to deal with essentially set up nodes and some understanding of the protocol for the policy enforcement. But that's basically like you know the uplift. And the second property is that it's actually um, dynamic. So. If at day one you have, let's say, three traders and you want two out of them to trade to basically be able to send money out of that wallet, if you set up a multi-sig wallet which in Bitcoin, which is like, you know, that is a th two out of three, 
And the next day you hire another operation guy and now you want to mutate that structure to be two out of four, you cannot actually do it. You need to actually create a new wallet, transfer all the funds from the old wallet to the new wallet, go to all of your counterparties, tell them, by the way, we changed addresses, don't ever send us to the old wallet, which they can accidentally still do so. With MPC, you can sort of continuously and dynamically restructure the underlying shares. So it's like very fluid. We call it like, you know, fluid, fluid uh, private key material because you can dynamically like change it from four to five to seven uh, change the internal structure of how many people need to sign it without actually changing the public key, without actually changing the deposit address, which is very important for institutional and enterprise environment because clearly people come, people live, um, so on, and you, need, you want to make sure that like, you know, all the privileges are, uh, are, are there. And then there are like uh, more, more interesting aspects over there that uh, the transactions are cheaper, and you know there is also like you know a longer list of benefits, but that's sort of like you know uh, what it boils down to. Awesome. Um, well, very very exciting. Uh, everything that's on the uh, on the horizon, both technically and, and in terms of the uh, the, the just general operational uh, work that you guys have done and, and milestones that you've hit recently. Congrats on the Asian expansion and and for scaling up so quickly. Um, I always like to end with uh, with a fun one, um, Michael. If uh, w- if and when I think when the HBO series is made um, that covers crypto, who do you want cast in your role? Um, and you can you can choose to be the bad guy. You can choose to be the white knight. It doesn't really matter. I'm curious which actor you would choose uh, to tell your story. Wow, <laughs> that's a that's a good one. Uh, so clearly, like you know, we are the good guys. Um, the guys that are chasing after the bad guys. I'm trying to think, like you know, who's the most, uh, mm-hmm. the the best one to chase after the, the maybe I don't know, like you know, maybe Tom Cruise. <laughs> Tom Cruise. All right. Yeah. Um, we'll uh, we'll take it. I'm just glad you didn't say Jason Biggs because the first three times <laughs> I, I asked that question, three people were competing with Jason Biggs. Um, uh, okay. So <laughs> I, I hope, like you know, I hope that uh, Tom Cruise will still be like you know active, you know, by the time that HBO will do the series. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, here's here's hoping. Um, well, Michael, it was, uh, it was a pleasure speaking, and uh, definitely uh, appreciate you coming on. We'll, we'll do it again soon. In the meantime, thank you, and thank everyone Thanks. else for tuning in. We'll be back in just a couple of days with another episode of Unqualified Opinions. Till then, take care. Peace. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Unqualified Opinions go live weekdays at noon Eastern time. You can follow me in the meantime on Twitter at 2BitIdiot if you want to continue the conversation or troll me. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.